Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Ryan Hughes. He has written and drawn comics for 2000 AD in Batman Black and White and designed logos for the Avengers, the X-Men, Superman, MTV, James Bond, Valiant Comics, including Harbinger, which we have talked about on this program before with the author Julie Murphy, Boom, and so much more. He has edited books on mid-century lifestyle illustration and custom typography and written on semiotics, culture, and collecting vintage science fiction pulps and paperbacks. His latest work is the novel XX, which is published by our friends at the Overlook Press. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. No problem, Jason. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Ryan, when I found this book, I felt like it was a moment that I, a veteran of the industry, don't get to experience much these days, especially with social media and information coming at me all the time. Uh, in that moment, I saw a book, a big, beautiful looking book that I had never heard of, despite this being a book that seems to have been made specifically for me. Uh, the cover is spectacularly made and on the back we read by not one critic, but two, one of them being Grant Morrison, that this novel is to be compared to Moby Dick and not only to Moby Dick, but to Faust, Ulysses in 2001. How do you feel, Ryan, about your novel being thrown into a conversation with these legendary works of literary fiction? And how is your book in conversation with these novels? Um, well, with those kind of recommendations, the only way is down, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's kind of embarrassing in a way because these are the things that publishers love to put on the back of books. And they're genuine um, reviews by genuine people. <laughs> I didn't make these up. But yeah, um, if people want to compare, compare me to those kinds of uh, books, I, I will roll with that. I'm good with that. Right. And um, I have to mention that after I discovered this book, we soon sold out of our first order, all to the booksellers who work here at Quail Ridge Books. And okay. We ordered quickly <laughs> and sold out again, and the cycle continues. Um, I'm going to continue along these lines for a moment. Faust is about a bargain. Ulysses. Yes is about a day in Dublin. Moby yeah. Dick is about a guy who's searching for a very specific well. XX is a novel about an alien encounter. Uh, let's just pull Ulysses out of this pile. My listeners by now know that I love to talk about James Joyce. Uh, Ulysses contains 18 different chapters, each told in a different manner in a different format. Uh, James Joyce was very meticulous about the method behind his madness. You, Ryan, also use many different formats, methods, fonts, mediums to tell your story. Is this something that you set out to do, something that was mapped out as maybe Joyce would map out Ulysses, or is this book something that happened as you were creating it? Um, it was very much mapped out beforehand, and I think that the, the, the uh, books that you mentioned have one thing in common, which is an awareness of the uh, structure of the novel and the foregrounding of that. And I think that because of my background as a, as a graphic designer, you're very much aware of what things look like on the page, so as well as what the words say you're very much aware of how they say it, you know, what the font is, what the layout is, uh, the color, the design, and how there's an extra level of communication above and beyond just the text. Um, 
and it always struck me as a graphic designer that sort of novels were missing a trick in a way um, because there was this much broader language that you could bring to bear to tell a story. And people who work in, say, uh, magazine design or advertising or music design um, are very much aware of the broad range of fonts and styles that you can bring to bear to communicate. Uh, but most novels were still set in um, Gaudi or Times, sort of nine-point justified page on page. Um, there are exceptions to that, you know, right the way back to Tristram Shandy, where you'd get these sort of interventions where you'd get little diagrams or, or graphic elements. So it, it's, it's a tradition that stretches way back. But um, I think because I come from the world of graphic design and the world of comic books, which again is um, words and pictures combined, uh, in its broadest sense, comic books are words and pictures combined, is that I just thought, what could you do if you took this much broader palette of expression and tried to tell a story? So the first, um, so that was, that, 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 that had been in my back, my, the back of my head for quite a while, probably about 15 years. In fact, I talked in an, in an interview, I found this interview from about 15 years ago where I actually mentioned this idea. And then it, it came to me how I could do this. In other words, what I didn't want to do is create a book where the narrative was just a thinly designed excuse for me to create all these interesting graphic design fireworks. It had to be an essential uh, element of the story. Uh, but then I realized that by sort of referencing all the sort of art movements of the 20th century, the 20th century being XX of the title, mm -hmm. um, and sort of personifying them some way um, in, in what I call in the book these these demon digital mimetic entities that have somehow coalesced in the in, in the internet. So they're they're the sort of zeitgeist of certain um, movements or or of uh, the sort of spirit of a century, if you like. And um, that it would enable me to talk in the language of. Italian futurism or the Bauhaus or a punk rock flyer or um, a newspaper clipping or a um, tweet. And I could legitimately put all of these to use in and use them as the as the sort of voice of these of these kind of spirits of the age, if you like. So once I'd sort of hit on that idea and um, the rest of it sort of fell into place pretty rapidly after that. So it was a very organic um, sort of build from, from then on. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, I'm going to hit on a couple of things that you just talked about. First, the line of this book. Uh, when you pick XX up off of the shelf and you open it up for the first time, you were greeted by the different covers of a novella called Ascension by Herschel Teague and uh, by the cover of a science fiction magazine called Planet Fall also. And then the inner dust jacket of XX contains elements of the inner dust jackets of this novel, Ascension. Uh, my question for you, Ryan, is what came first, Ascension or XX? And can you talk about how this element of your novel, uh, both the inclusion of Ascension by Herschel Teague and the covers that line, your inner cover, were inspired by your collecting or your writing about collecting vintage science fiction pulps and paperbacks? Yeah, I do collect. Uh, I'm a bit of a collector. So I, over the years, sort of built up a, uh, a collection of pulps and old sci-fi paperbacks. And if ever I'm in the States, the first thing I'll do is look out the local um, secondhand bookshop and 
go and rummage for ace doubles and uh vintage pulp magazines in fact i can tell an ace double purely by the smell that's how attuned i am to these kinds of things there's a certain decaying paper smell that they have that's unique the uh, the ascension story was written in tandem and the because i'm primarily a designer graphic designer i wrote this directly into indesign so it was written in the font that the character is speaking in. It didn't exist as a double space typewritten manuscript in Courier and then was designed as a second process. The design and the writing happened simultaneously. So uh, so the Ascension story was sort of built, as, I, as the themes of the main story came to the fore, they informed the Ascension, the themes of Ascension story and, and vice versa. So, uh, and, and then sort of on the second and third pass when you're doing the edit, you can sort of sift and sift those out and bring them to the fore. Um, the, what I did keep fairly fluid was be, because it wasn't in design, I could shuffle the chapters around fairly easily. Um, so um, the Ascension story originally was earlier on in the book, but it just seemed to me, and from the feedback from a couple of earlier readers, that it was probably just one too many things to throw at someone early on, uh, especially in a book where you're using up people's patience with weird interjections every two or three pages. So I moved that later, and as it turned out, that was a good move because then the Ascension story essentially happens between the point in the story at which we lose contact with our character on the moon and the point at which we pick up with her again back on Earth. So it then becomes... A, an analogue, a metaphor for the story that the alien is telling her in the meantime. And that was the sort of resonance that I'd built into that Ascension story that you read at the end, that this the, the supposed author who wrote this um, was a bit like a, a sort of counterculture guru who actually thought that he was somehow receiving this story from the ether in, in a in the same way that sort of tesla would listen in at warden clark cliff tower to the voices from the ether and think that he was maybe speaking to martians or something like that so we get the idea that maybe this story was actually channeled in some way this sort of 60s counterculture guru who then set up his own cult and did himself in as so many of those um, people did there's a bit of sort of ron hubbard and Philip Dick and people like that in there. Um, yes, so that's how that came about. And he, what you asked about the covers, I mean, again, that was sort of, as a graphic designer, my indulgence was to uh, sort of spoof all of those uh, different periods. So you get the original uh, pulp magazine that the story appeared in. So I mocked that up and I even printed it out and glued it over the cover of an old tatty pulp magazine that I had. So I could photograph it and it looked the part and then I went from there through the first edition hardbacks the paperbacks uh, just sort of built a, an alternate history of this this sort of forgotten novella and right up to the point where the more modern um, editions of the book are sort of designed in a much more high literature kind of way so in the same way that we get the work of say Lovecraft which now comes out in a Penguin Classics edition and it looks like all the other works of high literature um, and, and the same with Philip Dick's work the way that it gets um, 
reinterpreted and reappraised and elevated as the years go by. So I, I try to mimic that arc from you know, the high days of, of Pulp Fiction right up to its, its sort of enter, in, entry into the canon of literature in, in the present day. Excellent. Thank you so much. I used to live beside a pulp fiction shop in San Francisco called KO Books. I hope it's still there. Uh, it was a magnificent place. Ryan, um, this novel opens with a string of binary code. And my question for you is, how is binary code like an alien? How, how is it like a what? Like an alien. How is a binary code like an alien? Yeah. Uh, well, one of the main themes of the novel is communication and how we do this. And a book is obviously a method of communicating using the familiar set of symbols we call the alphabet. Um, but of course, we can communicate in all manner of ways. And so if aliens did want to communicate with us, it would probably be some kind of digital signal that we would receive. It would be numbers on a, on a screen or a, the wiggle of a needle on a piece of graph paper. And so we're then faced with an interpretation problem. How do we figure out what this actually means? And so much of uh, our comprehension of symbols is entirely tied up in our shared existence um, as, as human beings on planet Earth. I mean, you know, we share a history, um, a biology that means that we can read or figure out what, what, what other earthly languages are. But without that, without that shared biology or culture, how on Earth would we make any sense of um, an alien transmission? So yes, the book opens with a digital signal from space. And it also is mirrored at the end as well, without giving away too many spoilers. I then return to this idea of what a signal is. And also I delve into the idea of what is the difference between consciousness and information. So it may just be that what we are is transmissible as a signal. Maybe all we are can be reduced to noughts and ones and, and carried across out into the universe somehow. Right. Thank you so much, Ryan. And after the break, we're going to dive deeper into this novel XX. But before we hear from our sponsor, I want to ask about DJ Food and the album Citizen Void by Celestial Mechanic. Uh, this is an album that is reviewed in this book, an album published by Ninja Tune Records, uh, who I love. One of their compilation albums were my CD player out 20 years or so ago um, and still holds up magnificently. But there's a QR code in the review in this novel XX that links to a band camp page where you can listen to the album. How did this project inside your project come about? Well, that's in an interesting way because I thought that if a signal is received, supposedly of extraterrestrial origin, and then it, it is leaked onto the internet, one of the first things that people would probably do is try to make art out of this. So as well as a kind of crowdsourced effort to um, translate it and to make sense of it, people would get creative with it in all manner of ways. And so they'd probably make music out of it. And so as part of the novel, I wrote this fictitious music review in my best sort of pretentious music journalist um, speech. So it, it, it sort of... 
reminiscent of all those um, very pretentious reviews that you would read in um, NME or, or similar kind of papers, uh, the, whatever the equivalent of an American version of the New Musical Express might be. And um, DJ Food uh, is a friend of mine, and he and my sister, who's a classically trained pianist, um, concocted this album. So I think it might be the first time in history that the review of the album has preceded the actual album itself. So their brief was to take this album and make it a reality, which is what they did. Um, and they used a lot of looped pieces of, there's a whole library of NASA recordings available for free use online. So you might get the sign, the sound of a uh, sort of radio transmission from the Cassini probe um, swinging around Saturn, passing through the ring plane, and um, all of these weird uh, esoteric noises that, uh, sort of form the basis of this, this album. And uh, it's not actually released on Ninja Tune. I actually used um, uh, DJ Food uh, is, uh, does a lot of work for Ninja Tune. So um, I, uh, but the, the actual album is coming out as a limited edition yellow vinyl Ooh. in February um, with a, a, a 12 inch with a seven inch uh, um, packaged with it. Um, using the cover that you see in the actual book. So it is a real thing. So, yes, I'm hoping that people will get to that point in the book and then they'll point their smartphones at the QR code and then from then on they'll use it as the backdrop to listen to to read the book by from then on. Excellent. Yeah, I need to make sure I get one of those vinyls. Thank you, Ryan. And I mentioned at the top of this program that this book was meant for me and its details, like the inclusion of this album that had me uh, nerding out pretty hard. Um, listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Ryan Hughes. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Ryan Hughes, author of XX, which is published by our friends at the Overlook Press. Ryan, a quote about an idea by an idea on page 269 of XX reads, you can't stand in the way of an idea whose time has come. Can you talk about this quote both in the context of your novel XX and maybe outside of the context of your novel too? Yes, it's, it's a sort of recasting of Victor Hugo's quote, nothing is, is power, nothing is as powerful as an idea whose time has come, which uh, appears at the beginning of book two here. Yeah, so um, it, it, again, one of the main themes of the book are there, are, are, is that there are these um, 
almost like viral spreads, pandemics of ideas that sweep across the world. And, you know, when countries go to war, quite often it's an idea that is going to battle with another idea and the human beings are just the proxies for this idea. So you could see a lot of history in terms of um, the way that certain people, governments, countries become infected with an idea, whether that be, I mean, the two viral pandemics of the 20th century were communism and fascism. And in order to develop a sort of mimetic antibodies, we have to basically get over these seductive ideas, sort of see through their appeal and um, the damage that they can do. So again, one of the main themes of the novel is that ideas kind of sweep through us and 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 carry us along on this sort of tide of conviction and we've got to be very careful about how this might happen and the internet has basically brought the kind of central nervous system of the of the human organism into every home so we're connected much more directly in ways that we never have before um, you know many Centuries ago, the Catholic Church was very worried about the spread of the printing press and how this might carry new ideas that they had no control over into the heads of, of illiterate peasants who would not then do their bidding. And um, I'm sure that we have a very similar uh, discussion going on here. You know, there's a democracy of ideas within which uh, we have to be, as I, as I put it, sort of streetwise in the global village. We have to have our own mimetic antibodies so we don't get swept up in these very convincing ideas. And quite often the ideas don't care about their value or otherwise. You know, their, their, their infectious qualities are, are independent of, of whether they're good, bad, true, not true, indifferent. But I think I think it's 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 indicative of the world we live in that um, people can disagree on so many fundamental things. Whereas you would have hoped that uh, we would sort of come together, that ideas would coalesce around the facts of the matter. But it seems to me that we're sort of siloed in our own areas of of conviction, and so we've got to we've got to balance conviction with. An, an open-mindedness that isn't so open-minded that we let these ideas sort of wash through us and control us. And so um, in, in a kind of science fictional context, um, again, a bit of a spoiler here, but uh, one of our alien characters in this novel has a forebrain and a hindbrain. The idea being that he has a, a kind of internal firewall. So the, the forebrain is a bit like the, uh, it's like the food taster for the king who uh, the forebrain can indulge in, in whatever kind of thoughts that comes its way, but it doesn't, uh, you know, the, the consciousness of the creature resides in the hindbrain. So that if, if the forebrain happens to think something dangerous, uh, it can be purged and um, it doesn't sort of filter through into the creature itself, if you like. Uh, whereas we don't have this. Um, and we get sort of chided by this alien for being woefully naive. It's like we don't have any protection, if you like, from bad ideas, whereas obviously this alien comes from another place where they've had to deal with bad ideas and have developed this um, biology in order to protect themselves. Right. Um, 
I want to elaborate on this a little bit more. The quote uh, in your novel is, what were the two great mimetic pandemics of the 20th century? Fascism and communism. Powerful ideas amplified can spread like smallpox through an unprotected population. Uh, this quote comes up in some form or another um, more than once in your novel, but continuing along similar lines in a certain respect, there is much talk in this novel about the idea and concept of God and gods. How do the concepts of God and or the concept of gods fit in with the previous line of thought about mimetic pandemics? Or do they? And can you can answer from your character's perspective, from your own or both? Yeah, well, in the novel, um, the characters describe God as as extremely powerful means. So, um, I mean, personally, as an atheist, I think that religion is basically a proto-science. So we are faced with a world that is inexplicable to us. There are, there, there are earthquakes, there are a failed harvest or a, a volcano, and we come up with um, hypotheses as to to explain these things. So it might be that we personally have done something to displease our God. And so therefore the harvest has failed or there's a evil spirit under the ground. And that's why the volcano is erupting. So, and, but as the, as the scientific, as the experimental method gets a, a foothold, we test our hypotheses and find them wanting. And that's how modern science sort of gets a foothold and, and plants these, um, uh, these older ways of thinking. But I think that what modern science and religion both have in common is that they are there are humanity's way of explaining and making sense of the world that they find themselves in. It's just that the, metholo the methodology that science uses is, is self-correcting, whereas the methodology that religion uses isn't. And it also encompasses a lot of things. It doesn't differ, sort of pre-scientific thinking doesn't differentiate between biology, chemistry, physics, the sort of natural world, and uh, the cultural world, which is the world of morality and uh, humanity and arts and uh, you know, what to do with your life, all of these kind of questions of existence. They're, they're sort of rolled into one. And, uh, you know, what science did was differentiate these two um, completely different areas of, uh, of, of human um, inquiry. Uh, so we don't sort of look to a volcano in order to answer a moral question. You know, whether Pompeii is, is covered in lava or not has got absolutely nothing to do with what the inhabitants of Pompeii might or might not have been up to. It was just a fact of a magma dome uh, building up within uh, underground. You know, it's an entirely non-moral, non-judgmental um, explanation. So, um, again, that sort of feeds into the novel in a lot of ways in that um, I describe sort of gods as, as particularly strong viral memes that have lasted for generations, you know, thousands of years in some cases. And because they contain within themselves the means of their own propagation through the article of faith, which basically sidesteps any uh, recourse to scientific proof, 
Um, it, it's, it's a masterstroke if you're a meme that wants to survive. Um, sidestepping the scientific process is an absolute brilliant survival strategy. So in the kind of ecology of, of ideas, um, these, these viral memes have done very well. And um, uh, again, spoilers, but one of the, the, other, the other sort of underpinning idea and ideas of the novel is if we are faced with these very dangerous ideas, whether that be uh, the French Revolution or the rise of um, fascism in Germany or whatever, and we realise that these are primarily um, sort of infections of the mind, um, how do we create antibodies? How do we create a kind of mental prophylactic against these kinds of things? And the characters, the D-men, the digital memetic entities, which are, we meet three of them, although there are many more, uh, which are XX, the 19th Count and Girl 21, are these, are, are, are our kind of antibodies, if you like, that are, um, uh, they're meme plexes, to use um, uh, uh, Susan Blackmore's uh, term. Uh, I mean, meme obviously was uh, coined by Richard Dawkins back in The Selfish Gene, um, but it, the idea has been sort of developed by um, lots of people, including uh, Susan uh, Blackmore. But um, so these ideas, they're, they're kind of like cohering memeplexes that have been given a way to talk to us and, uh, and a way to uh, express themselves in a form to give themselves some kind of solidity. So again, without too many spoilers, um, it's a bit like we have created or people in our history have created uh, our own idea antibodies to fight what they see as bad ideas that may cause us irreparable harm. Yeah, thanks. And um, I did want to mention for our listeners, there are lots of puns in this book. And one with the demon that you're referencing um, comes to mind. There's a chapter titled Angels and Demon or something along those lines that takes place in the Tate Museum. And it reminded me of when I was in um, Paris when the Da Vinci Code came out and all these folks were going on like Da Vinci Code tours of the Louvre. And it was a very bizarre time, I think. But um, thank you, Ryan. I want to pivot for a moment and talk about the story of Dana Normanson. Um, and I can probably at this point stop seeing spoiler alerts because we've gotten a little bit into spoilery territory, but this is one, uh, but it's not too far into the book, relatively speaking. Um, that being said, you may want to take a moment to pause here if you intend on reading the book and come back to this after you finish section one. But Ryan, Dana encounters an alien on the moon Dana herself is, of course, an alien on the moon. Um, and this other alien is also, it is not a native of the moon, it has crashed onto the moon from elsewhere. But this alien and Dana have a mind meld of sorts, an experience that leaves Dana with the alien's memories, and she sees herself from this alien's perspective. In other words, she sees herself as an unknown alien creature and experiences the thoughts of another life form encountering a human being from Earth for the first time. Uh, what was this scene like for you to write, and what was its inspiration? Um, one of the things that really annoys me about science fiction is the fact that 
you know, you, if you watch something like Star Trek, everyone speaks English with an American accent and everyone is bipedal. Everyone moves their mouth and sound comes out and they talk. Um, real communicate. There are more alien creatures around sea vents on the bottom of the seafloor on planet Earth than there are aliens in Star Trek. It strikes me as a massive lack of imagination that we cannot conceive of more alien aliens than we populate our science fiction TV shows and films with. Um, and, and, when we, and when we communicate with them, it's easier than going to Thailand or Spain or somewhere on holiday and having to fall back on a guidebook. Um, it's like someone from the opposite side of the galaxy um, somehow is easier to communicate with than someone from the opposite side of planet Earth, and I find this absurd. So I really wanted to delve into how alien alien could be, and you are um, stuck with this communication problem. And you know, a film like Arrival, I think, is built around this in a very interesting way. But it occurred to me that one way that you could skip the um, the kind of intervening issue of language, which is a, um, it's a transmission issue. It, it, you know, if we were telepathic, we wouldn't need language. We wouldn't need the written word. We wouldn't have books, much as I would hate to live in a world where there weren't any books. So um, this, this, this way that we have to convert thought into symbol so that someone else can look at that symbol or hear that symbol and then convert the symbol back into thought so that they, in their head, have some hopefully fairly accurate version of, of what you had in your head. Um, is is you know language the language that we use to do that is because we can't directly read each other's minds so if we were to do that um i thought that that would be the one way that we could get around this language barrier uh so yes as you were saying dana interfaces with this alien and then what i thought would be really interesting is to sort of open not with a description of the alien but a description of how what a human being looks like now if you came to planet earth for the first time and you saw a human being i think you'd be disgusted by us you know we have um we have like a hole in our face that's kind of got this thing that you know a tongue that is somehow alive sort of moving around in this wet hole that's ringed with white hard things i mean it sounds absolutely revolting and i'm sure if we weren't used to the fact that this is what humans look like this is what we look like we would find ourselves absolutely yeah hideous mm -hmm. so what i was trying to do in that um portion of the novel is to make us realize that as as biological entities we take the human shape as a kind of norm but there's no reason that it should should be anything like the norm it's not it's not even the norm on planet earth so yes yeah, so, so so when i'm watching star trek and people people shake hands with aliens or they're because because the way that people communicate it's not just what they say it's the body language it's the facial expressions i mean people on planet earth don't even shake their head or nod their head for yes or no the same in the same way across the world why would an alien do so why would we be able to read an alien's emotional state it might be the utter opposite of what we think it is 
Um, again, I just think it's a monumental lack of imagination that a lot of science fiction um, has, sadly. I mean, I can understand why it's done, because you just need to get on with telling the story. And if you didn't use this shorthand, every single science fiction story that had an alien encounter would have to spend several hours on how they actually get to the point where they can communicate in some way. So you have to skip over all this. But for me, that was, you're skipping over the interesting part. You're skipping over a part that not only makes us think about how alien alien might be, but it also makes us realise how weird we are. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you so much, Ryan. Um, so there's so much more to talk about here, and I'm definitely up for a follow-up conversation at some juncture in the future for our listeners who are just now discovering this book. But for now, I want to talk about the ways in which time and perspective shifts the way that we read a novel or experience any other work of art. And I will highlight a section from XX here to elucidate my question. And that selection is from a chapter titled Oblate Spheroid Space Hoppers. Uh, two characters, Jack and Nadine, have just attended a masked ball at a venue called Soterrain. And the invitation reads, Masks Compulsory clothes optional and this line masks compulsory reads so much differently in december of 2020 than it probably did when you wrote it especially from my perspective as a manager of a retail bookstore during the holidays where we absolutely have to enforce a mask mandate at the door um Quail Ridge Books being the new Studio 54, as many of you have surely thought while encountering the lines on our sidewalk here uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina but can you talk about how time can color and shift perspectives on works of art, even something probably that seemed so simple as you were writing it as masks compulsory on an invitation within your novel? Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? How um, the meaning can completely shift. Um, I mean, this novel was written over a period of three and a half, four years, uh, and I finished it three, four years ago. So, yes, I had no idea where we would be now. Um, but, you know, as Picasso says, a painting is never finished. And I think that the, the context within which a work of art is reappraised continually shifts. So um, works that, I mean, it goes, it goes back to the way that um, I, was I, 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 I allude to with the Ascension story, is that something that was considered to be quite throwaway can sometimes be um, reassessed and become emblematic of a certain period. And I think pop music is, is probably the prime um, example of this, how something that was probably a throwaway three-minute single can end up by being so um, imbued with its time and its place, even without it trying to be so. And, and, other and, and other works of art that do try to be incredibly deep and meaningful end up by falling by the wayside, which is probably what will happen to my book. Um, but, uh, yeah, so why is that? Um, is it just that some people are more plugged into the voice of the times and manage to articulate that, maybe even accidentally, and other people aren't? Um, I mean, how many, how many say... Um, Academy Award winning films I bet if you went back to the 40s and 50s you would not remember most of them 
But at the time, they were considered to be world beaters. So what's happened? Were they actually not that good? Or has has our, has the sand shifted under them somewhat? I think it's an interesting... I think it's an interesting point because it means that our criteria for deciding excellence probably isn't as um, universal as we think it is. You know, it's 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 plugged into so many other um, things that uh, we probably should ignore. Um, we're sort of swayed by current thinking, possibly to give weight to things that maybe don't deserve it and overlook other things that maybe do. And time will tell, I think. It's a bit like fashion. You know, it's only in retrospect that you can tell that sort of mullets were an absolute disaster. But at the time, <laughs> who knew? I, mean, I never had a mullet. I've probably got a mullet now. This is the closest I've ever gotten to a mullet, but I've not been to a hairdresser since mm. March. So this is the longest my hair's ever been. Yeah, they might be making a comeback. You never know. Um... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. That's, that's my fashion prediction for 2021 is the mullet. <laughs> the mullet comes back. <laughs> the lockdown mullet. Right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ryan. And thank you for writing this extraordinary novel. It's highly unlikely that it's going to fall by the wayside. We are just trying to um, insert it into uh, a lot of large conversations here at Quail Ridge Books in Raleigh. I have no doubt that it will continue to spark years worth of conversations, both in our bookstore and elsewhere. Uh, listeners, I've been speaking with Ryan Hughes, author of XX, which is published by our friends at the Overlook Press. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Ryan Hughes for joining me. Copies of XX can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get a free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.